Hi, I'm co-host Lois Donkwa, and this is the 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Sarah Stamper, PhD in Psychological and Brain Science, and current Chief Research Officer at Murmuration. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. It's amazing to get to hopefully inspire and connect with some current uh, Johns Hopkins PhD students. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in. Well, I want to first start by hearing a little bit about why you wanted to pursue a PhD in psychological and brain sciences, and also just hear a little bit more about your work and your time at Hopkins. Of course. Um, I think my time at Hopkins broadly was one of the most influential moments that I have had to date. Um, I think the educational experience and the research that I got to undertake was really transformational for getting me where I am today. Um, and so I'm super grateful for it. Uh, but gosh, I did not get there on any sort of linear path. So it is a, it's a winding tale. I think like for many where, um, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and you're collecting experiences along the way. So, um, I ended up at Hopkins in psych and brain science because I think, um, I had a really, strong conviction that people are powerful, but people are messy. And um, many of the problems we're facing today rely on people to solve them. And taking an approach of understanding people, of being able to say what motivates them, what makes them tick, how do they come together for action? Um, what are the barriers that make behavior that people want to engage in really hard? How do we start to solve these problems? Um, and uh, I found that through studying bats and dolphins and all of these weird critters <laughs> where um, one of the approaches of, of neuroscience and neuroethology more specifically is to take these champion animal systems and to say, this is the greatest thing, right? Bats echolocate and they fly and we can't even make planes that do that as well as bats do. Um, so I really took this approach of champion model systems and studying the neural correlates for behavior and like building up from like all the way from neurons to like really complex societal organizations um, with lots of deviations along the way. I I love everything you said for a lot of reasons. One, because my path also was certainly not linear, but then also I'm someone that weirdly went from studying neurons to now doing <laughs> systems change yes. work. So it's all, they're all networks. <laughs> they're, they're all networks. And um, now in my day to day, um, one of the teams that I lead is a group of data scientists. And um, many of the approaches that they do rely on neural networks um, and various other avenues um, and methodologies for machine learning. But neural nets is, is definitely still finding its way into my day to day life. 
That's really cool. Well, I want to kind of, I guess, not so much dig in, but hear more about how your experience of having it not be a direct path of being like being in the moment where you have your PhD, how that informed then how you approached being in the program and what you thought about what you would do afterwards. Yeah, I think, um, I think that when you, uh, sorry to harp on this, but when you think about the really big things that we're facing, when you think about energy and climate crisis, when you think about protecting, um, our democracy, when you think about ensuring that every kid has access to high quality public education, when you think about these really big problems that we have to come together to solve, thinking about that as a domain, like, oh, chemistry or math or um, engineering doesn't get you there, right? Like you need lots of different ways that people think, you need lots of different skill sets and that's what sort of neuroscience and psych and brain science did for me was it gave me a place to say, let's take a multidisciplinary approach. Let's weave everything that you've learned together in school and let's apply it towards understanding something extraordinarily complicated. And I would still argue that like a human brain is probably the most complicated thing that exists on earth. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that was the approach. And what that meant when I was in my program was I had collaborators who were in mechanical engineering, who were studying animal locomotion and sensing for robotic design. And I had collaborators then in cognitive psychology and collaborators in biopsychology and collaborators in neuroscience. And so I've always thought about things not only on my own path of being a very winding hodgepodge together, but when you think about solving problems, making sure that you're bringing lots of different groups and views. And um, and even though the program was psych and brain science, right, while I was in it, uh, I was all over the place on that campus. <laughs> so it's like a little bit in Krieger and a little bit in Hackerman and a little bit in Ames. And um, where are you going to find the skills and the expertise to really think um, interdisciplinary about these kinds of big problems? Yeah, I I certainly understand that. It's I, I think it's both a, a plus and a minus where it's starting thinking big, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to then narrow in and hone in on one specific thing or figure out how to communicate that to someone who's not in your brain, right? Yeah, I think that ultimately that was what precipitated my shift out of academia. Um, so when I started uh, thinking about uh, one, gosh, I spent a lot of time in a basement staring at fish <laughs> and um is there another way for me to have impact? And is this in fact too narrow of a focus for the kind of thinking and, um, and the way that my brain works? Um, and so I did branch out. I took a little bit of a break. Um, I went and started a high school neuroscience program. And uh, I thought that was going to be a one-year experiment of, hey, what if you took the greatest pieces of neuroscience? Like, let's record cells. Let's slice open brains. Let's dissect eyeballs. What if you took the best of the best that you don't get to do until graduate school and instead did it with 16-year-olds? Like, would that help particularly... Uh, women and underrepresented students persist in STEM fields, which in many cases are designed 
to weed out students and to make it harder to persist, right? Like nobody loves 8 a.m., three days a week calculus. Like it's just, or OCHEM. Um, But if you know what's on the other side, like if you know the coolest stuff that you could do, would it help? Um, and a one-year experiment became two years, two-year experiment became three years. Uh, we spun it up into a summer camp and um, started working with some Baltimore city schools, the WISE program, uh, the Ingenuity program, et cetera, to like really get this more um, distributed across Baltimore, um, which was awesome. Um, I don't remember the point. <laughs> That's okay. I, okay. I'm... Like like I said, I cannot keep a straight line uh, to save my life. So um, I, in fact, um, am on my own tangent right now. (laughs) That's I I typically have tangents, but I loved that you shared that because it made me think about how I often like to do things or make sure be intentional that the work that I'm doing has some type of impact towards the community that I'm in, um, in particular, but then also just the other spaces around me. And I love how you found an opportunity to apply kind of the science academic professional interests you have to just the space that you were in. And I'm curious what kind of motivated you to do that. How did you think, oh, let me do that. And just hearing more about that. Yeah, um, I... I think that at my core, um, there are lots of different things to optimize for. Um, you can optimize for money. You can optimize for impact. Um, you can optimize for all kinds of things, right? Like I'm an impact person. Um, and so when, um, when I had the pleasure of teaching intercession for Hopkins, when I had the pleasure of teaching really talented undergraduates and ultimately graduate students, um, really wanting to make sure that we were building a really strong pipeline of STEM students. You know, when I think about um, my work today and the role of big data and data science and the bias that we introduce as humans right? We have bias around the questions that we ask. We have bias around where we curate and bring data in from. We have bias around how we do our analyses and how we interpret it. And I think that there's been this push towards science as objectivity, right? That there is an ultimate truth and our goal should be as objective as possible. And I think that one of the things that is always resonated with me is well, is there an alternative? Like, could we actually instead just declare our values, own them and use our values to shape the work that we're doing? And starting a program for students was was sort of a reflection of that, right? Of valuing the diverse points of view, of wanting to see more representation of women and of students who don't look like me actually in STEM fields and developing so that one day they're sitting um, at the tables and their chief research officer, and they are starting to try to make these decisions. 
Um, so that was kind of that, right? Like it was a, here are the things I care about. Like I care about school. I care about kids and their education. I care about making sure that there's opportunity and access to have these really enriching experiences. And I care about making sure that I can be a mentor and a teacher and help to drive that kind of connection and motivation. Um, and I, it was really, that was how I got on the impact path, right? Of like, now I work at a nonprofit, <laughs> right? Like there are um, lots of ways that this manifests, but ultimately um, it was really all about sort of trying to declare values and saying, this is important and I want to prioritize it. That's really, it's really cool for a lot of reasons. I think it's, it's funny because I've only ever thought about, um, like I've thought about understanding kind of the skills and lessons that you're getting from a doctoral program as things that you figure out how to apply to a future thing. So it's like, okay, if I'm doing health services research, I'm applying whatever lessons from my program to whatever role I'm in um, and whatever type of project I'm in. But this, just from what you said, this is the first moment where I've also thought about it as you're applying your interests and how you view the world to whatever job you're doing, whatever that thing is, which I yeah. think that's so cool. I, um, I, it, that's exactly it to me, right? Like when I think about what does it mean to be a scientist? It means you're curious. It means that you move around the world and you're constantly making observations. You're asking questions, you're probing the boundaries. And it's that curiosity that drew me to a PhD program, right? Like you have to be curious <laughs> to spend years in a basement staring at fish. Um, uh, and that then is the, the thing that shapes my work, right? Like when you talk about like data science, like it's a curiosity to understand what data exists, how it can come together, how you can use it to build narratives and to tell stories about people, who they are, their experiences and what drives them to action. It is curiosity when you lead a product team and you are building out new software with features and functionality and you need to know like who's going to use this what are their pain points what is making their job so hard um it's curiosity when you're thinking about how do we build this organization what does this look like what kinds of people do we need how do all these functions come together um so for me right like it's the love of learning it's always wanting to grow and all of that is rooted in I'm a walking, talking manifestation of the scientific method, <laughs> which ultimately just boils down to being really, really curious. Yeah, I understand that. So something I'm curious about, though. So yeah. ah, it, I see what you did there. Yeah, I, I wasn't trying, but it worked. <laughs> um, no, but I so I think about how for some people it can come really naturally to understand that. Um, kind of be aware of how their feelings can motivate um, whatever professional direction they can go in or should go in um, and what is true to them. But I think about how for some people, um, they might be more kind of logic and like technical based, and it could be hard for them to identify how to attach what their personal desires and values are to the type of work they're doing. And I'm curious if from your work, you've 
seen people like you've learned how to communicate the kind of squishy stuff to people that aren't are less inclined to think that way um I mean squishy is squishy (laughs) and um and I don't think that everyone has to right like I think that there's um, definitely roles and ways to motivate and drive your professional career that are rooted in logic and your technical skills. Um, that's just not me. Um, and so I think my, my advice is, is ultimately, um, even if you're not sure what is driving your motivation and you don't understand exactly or haven't gotten to the point where you're articulating your personal values. And when you're reflecting on that in a professional context, um, you're still going to kind of naturally gravitate places, right? Like there are going to be jobs that appeal to you and jobs that don't, there are going to be organizations that speak to you and organizations that don't, right? Like um, maybe you're a material scientist and you have spent your PhD developing some like brand new, super cool fabric that uh, is ultra wicking. And the thing that like is tugging at you is that you want to work for Patagonia. Like that probably actually says something about who you are, what you value and what you want in an organization to, to put your skills to use at. Um, if instead you're like, oh no, I should go work at Nike or on it. Right. Like I think that there's all these sort of subtle signals that, um, that probably help over time. You know, I mean, if, if you think I'm two decades in, right, like, uh, so I didn't know this 20 years ago. I have started to refine and understand as I have gone through lots of jobs, right? Like I went from running the high school neuroscience program to consulting and doing strategic planning and initiative work for colleges, universities, and schools across the country. Again, I was like, so curious, how does all of this work? Like, and what kinds of new educational programs can we design that are really interdisciplinary and that have these really big changes. Um, and then I went to a tech company um, and now I'm at a nonprofit, right? And so like, I think that as you look at the path that you end up taking and you try to tell yourself the story of how you got there, uh, particularly when it's actually just a bowl of spaghetti and you never really had a plan, <laughs> um, you you start to see some of the through lines. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the biggest lessons I've also learned from having a story that was not actually direct, but then noticing the parts that are actually consistent throughout. I I tell this story sometimes to people where I was interested to go to med school in undergrad and a letter that I wrote to a professor who I asked to write me a letter of recommendation, I basically wrote way too long of an email, but it was valuable in that it detailed why, like the type of impact I wanted to have in this world. Um, it's been years, like decades, like 10 years since I wrote that letter. But going back to look at it now, it's what I'm doing now. And it's like, right, I didn't realize that what I wanted to do was this. And this isn't the version I wrote for myself. But it's fine, because I just continue to follow my gut. Yeah, I think we need to be kinder to ourselves in many ways. And um, a lot of things that seem not direct, that seem like mistakes, that seem like, oh gosh, why did I do that? 
it's all learning opportunities. And it doesn't mean it doesn't suck. It doesn't mean that sometimes you don't get your teeth kicked in. Um, but I think that for me, there are lots of false starts, right? Like when I actually graduated, um, in the summer of 2012 with my PhD, I had, um, a job, um, at Virginia Tech in their, um, integrated science program. And I was super excited about it. And Lois, I lasted seven months. <laughs> <laughs> right? Before I was in the dean's office being like, actually, I'm really sorry, this is not for me. It's okay, right? Like, uh, and then I went back to Hopkins <laughs> um, and I did a postdoc because I was like, clearly I'm not baked enough and I have not figured out <laughs> the answers to these questions. And so I did, I went to mechanical engineering because I knew that one of the things that I felt was holding me back was that I didn't have coding. I didn't know how to program. I wasn't very computational. And when I looked at the uh, sort of direction that many of the most interesting questions about our brains and, and how we all work, like there was no doubt that it was going to require a lot of computation. Um, and I loved that, right? Like it was like a whole nother chance to be a learner all over again. Um, and eventually you have to, you know, like go get a job. But at that point, I knew that the job probably wasn't going to be to be, you know, a full-time professor uh, who eventually just kind of write, this is like not a knock, but right, like it's a lot of grant writing <laughs> and like, you're not always the one doing the science, and, um, and so for me, like I wanted to stay like really doing and, um, and had to find other pathways first through teaching, then through consulting turned out consulting wasn't for me, right? Like, I don't want to say yes, if the answer isn't yes. <laughs> and, and like I said earlier, right? Like I'm not optimized for revenue. So like, if it's a dumb project, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, I don't care what you want to like offer. Um, and, um, uh, and then, you know, ult ultimately now my my role sort of through the civic tech space into, um, you know, broader impact. Yeah, that's it's you said a lot of things that I probably needed to hear today. So I love oh, that. And well, there it's, you always, go. <laughs> it's always good to hear the message of be kind to yourself. Yeah. So I have one more question for you. Of and I'm course. curious, what inspires you right now? Uh, so uh, when I think back uh to november of 2022 that uh, i still feel like we're on pandemic time so time just like completely warps but it wasn't that long ago um i like many people felt that we were headed into a uh it was called in the media a red wave but what it represented to me was an attack on our democracy and on the fabric of our society in a way that felt really scary. And I was uh, inspired and heartened um, that the American people, right? Like that coming on the tail of like Roe v. Wade being overturned, um, of coming on the tail of like, gosh, like there's like attacks on our democracy, that people showed up, right? They, they showed up, they voted, especially the Zoomers, right? Gen Z, um, you know, definitely early counts of the midterm suggesting that they're maintaining a level of voting that's consistent with the highest rates we've ever observed. 
And um, they have no reason to, right? Like they uh, have uh, come to age during a global crisis uh, against a backdrop of climate change. They've lived through the longest war in U.S. history, 9-11, Katrina, the 2008 crisis, the opioid epidemic. epidemic, political turmoil, like violence, mashing, right? Like, I mean, they have every reason to like check out and to say like, yeah, okay, no, thank you. And instead they're resilient, they're engaging, they are, uh, they're showing up in some really dysfunctional systems to do what they can. And um, it might've been because I had the pleasure of getting to teach a lot of them and I'll always have a soft spot. Uh, but it's also because when I think about the the future and the problems that we have to tackle, I'm very um, heartened to have allies like the younger folks who are, who are coming up and trying to make big change. So uh, I don't know if you count as a Zoomer, uh, but if you do, I would say that's a roundabout way of saying uh, you and, and many of your peers are very, very inspiring. <laughs> well, I, it's great to know that you're not sure if I'm a Zoomer or not, I'm not, <laughs> but, um, not, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> um, I'm Gen Alpha, actually. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Those, they're like men. <laughs> Look, I, uh, I make no, uh, no guesses about when people do PhDs in, <laughs> in their, uh, sort of age history. <laughs> right. Well, in any case, um, yeah, it's great to see people fired up about um, just things and change and all of that. Um, yeah. So I want to thank you so much, Sarah, no, just for taking, you. taking time to chat. It's been wonderful to just hear your perspective and hear a little bit about your experiences. Uh, amazing. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, hopefully I can continue to be helpful to Hopkins and uh, students and alums. Um, I would love that. So thanks. 